Good morning, Cornerstone. And for the sake of time, um, you're going to have to read the rest of that account uh, at home. It's a long account, but the end of it, of course, is the salvation of Israel, and it's very, very spectacular for all sorts of reasons. Uh, my name's Raphael Muggridge, one of the elders here at Cornerstone, for those who don't know me. In today's sermon, I'm going to look at how God shows his love for his children and how we respond, and it's probably not what you'd think. So let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, may my words honour your word. We ask that you would be gracious and that you would open our ears for your glory. We ask that we would hear you today and that your spirit would move us to follow you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, hands up who remembers um, the TV series called The Greatest American Hero. I think that's what it was called. Okay, some people are showing their age. Um, I'd encourage those who haven't not to go and look at it because I don't want you to I don't want you to think anything less of me or those other people who put their hands up. My brother and I only got to, to watch this um, when we were at my cousin's house and my parents weren't around. Hopefully they're not watching. Of course they were right, it was a bit frivolous and although it was slapstick, there was some poorly acted violence and as the crooks of each episode were rounded up and the good guys were rescued. From memory it started with the main character being given a cape and lycra suit and then he was expected to go and save people with those superhuman powers. But there was a problem. In fact, there were quite a number of problems. Firstly, he was gangly and ungainly and uncoordinated. He was anemic and physically weak. He had blonde curly hair, clearly unfit for the role. <laughs> he was, of course, socially inept. He was psychologically completely unprepared for the rigours of rescuing people. He was unable to fly without crashing. He was unable to exert any physical strength without carnage. He couldn't get his point across and he lost friends gradually for embarrassment. It was remarkable that this poor guy, confused and um, befuddled, ended up becoming a hero. Of course, the historical account of Gideon is not that story at all. But there is a sense in which God chose the most unlikely of people to save his children, the children of Israel. So why does God do this? Why did God choose Gideon? Like many other judges, he was not chosen for his stellar capabilities. Instead, God wanted to use a prototype saviour that would instead display God's glory and God's affection for his people. If there was nothing else I could say today, it would be that God is in the business of displaying his glory and he displays it through his love and rescue of his people. He displays his glory through the rescue and love and affection for his people, even us. This morning I'd like to explore how God demonstrates this faithfulness by rescuing us from our sin 
and suffering, how in that process, even for us, he is glorified. So there are two main points. The first is sin and suffering. And the second is repentance and deliverance. We'll explore the relationship between Israel's sin and their suffering. And we'll look at how repentance led to deliverance and safety. So let's look at this first point of sin and suffering. Israel's sin separated them from God and his favour, bringing them great suffering. The book of Judges and Ruth describe a period of 350 years ending in about 1400 BC where the Israelites had not yet complained about having a human king and still had God as their king. Israel were his people and God was their king. When they faced perils, God would anoint a judge from amongst the tribes of Israel to rescue them from their backsliding. In all, over the 350 years, God raised 14 judges to rescue the children of Israel in successive cycles of what one author calls relapse, retribution, repentance and rescue. Yes, 14 cycles of the Israelites relapsing into sin, God's retribution on them for judgment and the Israel's, Israelites' repentance and then God rescuing them from their judgment. It's remarkable and comforting that God will be so patient with his children. The literal meaning of judges, of course, means saviour. It means someone to protect, someone to preserve, someone to deliver, and somebody to rescue from enemies. Of course, God's ways are not our ways, and those saviours would not have been the people that we would have chosen for the job. Judges 6 sees the children of Israel in one of these predicaments. Judges 6 verse 1 repeats the familiar refrain, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Amazingly, it took just 40 years of peace for the nation of Israel to get to that point. 40 years. It's not a long time. That is one half of one generation. This was an important reminder to me to tend to our own spiritual faith, our health, that of our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I'll mention here there are a number of single people in this congregation that are well known for their spiritual care of others around them. It's a wonderful thing. Chapter 6 verse 3 tells us that God used the Midianites, the Amalekites and other eastern peoples to invade the Israelites. It seems here that sometimes God's training is not through respectful people, it's not through nice people, it's sometimes not through nice nations. Sometimes we protest against tyranny or poor treatment, and you will know me well, but God will do whatever it takes to get our attention and to rescue us from our own sin. It's hard, but this is not hate. This is love and sometimes it hurts. Recently I read the testimony of a Christian from China who said that initially his church was completely bewildered by the bulldozing down of their building and then the imprisonment of their elders, some of whom they never saw again. But then it began to dawn on them 
that this was no mistake. This was not a mistake of God. This was not an oversight from Jesus at all. It was Jesus' plan for their church and the individuals in it to purify and grow their trust in Jesus. And their faith grew. Their trust in God grew. Their love for God grew. Are we reading and praying each day to prepare us for the Lord's discipline? Even to give thanks for this grace for us. What is the heart attitude to the Lord's discipline? Hebrews 12 verse 6 tells us to not make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes us because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. In this case, God used quite repugnant, brutal, terrifying nations to visit discipline on his children, his precious children of Israel. The Midianites who came from Midian, the gentleman Midian, the illegitimate child of Abraham and Keturah. You might imagine the kind of resentment that metastasized over generations, resulting in the two nations being arch enemies. On their best days, the Midianites had a reputation for being troublemakers and on not respecting borders, generally being lawless. On their worst days, the Midianites had an axe to grind with their half-brothers, the Israelites. They were ruthless. In fact, the reason they were ruthless was because the Israelites had previously routed them in battle. The Amalekites, who were descended from Esau, on the other hand, had an even worse reputation, known for being generationally treacherous, depraved, filthy, and apparently quite disgusting in their life and customs. These first few verses of the chapter tell us what life was like for the children of Israel. How bad could it be, you ask? What was it like for them? Well, they had come to fear man rather than God, so that they cowered under the bullying of their enemies. God took away their strength and their confidence. Their confidence in God gave way to timidity. Weakness and impotence became their lot. God took away their shelter and God took away their safety. They lost their homes and they retreated to the holes in the hills. Not really a romantic hideaway in the mountains, but unlined, cold, dusty caves without the comforts and the luxuries that they had become accustomed to. God took away their sustenance. When you lose your crops, you get hungry and you get skinny and you lose your health. And what was their greatest loss? Their greatest loss, I think, was that God took away their rest. They no longer had peace. Imagine sleeping fitfully at night, every night, jumping out of the sleep at the slightest noise, dreading being threatened at your door, whilst another raiding party took what little food and clothing you had for your children and your wife. When God takes away our peace as individuals or families or nations, perhaps, perhaps God is speaking. Is he speaking to you? And God stamped his authority on this discipline for his precious children by making it last seven years. 
seven being the number of his completeness and perfection. So you ask, what ought would have led to this kind of discipline? Well, being a good parent um, for the children of Israel, God explains it. And he explains it very simply and very directly. Verse six, verse, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8 tells us, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you didn't listen to me. The phrase, you have not listened to me, is more accurately translated, have not listened and have not obeyed my voice. The children of Israel had not listened, had not heard, and hadn't obeyed. It sounds really simple, actually, and it is, and it isn't. As a sinner myself, I know what it's like. It starts small. Have you seen the video of somebody with a trail of dominoes? One is very, very small, it starts the size of a matchbox, and then the next one is twice the size of a matchbox, and so on and so on. And then the last domino is the size of a human being. It seemed inconceivable that the matchbox-sized domino could topple a human-sized domino. But it doesn't work quite like that. The smallest one topples the next one, and the bigger, and the bigger, and the bigger, until finally the person-sized domino collapses to the ground. Our turning from God is like this, and it would have been the same for the Israelites. It starts so small that sometimes we don't even notice it. Perhaps it was skipping church for a sports match or study on Sunday. Then we might have skipped again. Finally, we stopped coming to church pretty much altogether because it's probably not as important as we thought it was. Or perhaps it's that girl or guy that you're interested in who's not a Christian, or just not quite really a Christian at all. Maybe they'll become a Christian the more you get to know them. You spend time getting to know them then, and before you know it, you're dating, or even worse. But we tell ourselves it's not really that bad because, you know, you're not really going to marry them. Suddenly you're preparing to be married and disobeying God and then future generations are at stake. A little domino can knock over a big domino. Small things give way to large things. Or it could be more subtle, just skimping on tax return. Here and there or gossiping at a prayer meeting, keeping quiet instead of speaking up against injustice. All small things, we've all been there, I'm there all the time. We know how easy it is for a temptation to give away to a trajectory that ends in sin. Do we pray every day that God would keep us and our families and our friends from temptation? This is one way that we can partner with God to keep our family and friends within God's circle of safety. So, if these things bring our world crashing down around us, what should we say? Should we consider why this happens? Absolutely. Ask yourself and God, why has this happened to me? Just the same way as the Israelites were asking, why has this happened to us? 
Have we turned away from our Lord Jesus to other people or other things? A few years ago, a friend said to me, Raph, rather than worrying about all the trouble, ask yourself, what is your Lord trying to say to you? I'd forgotten that trouble was God's way of getting my attention, of waking, waking me up, just as Michael mentioned to us last week. Our suffering is never an accident. Sometimes God's discipline is not of our making, again, as Michael pointed out last week, but sometimes it is. God designs suffering to shape us for this earth and the next one. Romans 5 verse 4 has a bit to say about this. Paul Sells tells us, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Most of this congregation, unlike the Israelites, have lived in a nation and time unparalleled for peace and tranquility. How will we respond if cruel nations dominate our region? How are we to respond if our freedoms are removed from us as they appear to be at the moment? What are we to think if God takes away our strength, our reputation in our local community? Well, God tells us in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 13 that this is a God-given opportunity for us. When I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence amongst my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know about you, but at this point I think, well, we don't have idols. I don't have idols. That's not the way in the modern world. But actually, that's not true. I'm kidding myself. Idols, for me, are probably the same things as idols for you. Well, what are they? Anything we particularly dwell on a little too much, maybe? You'll know the things that fill the minutes and the hours of your mind and the deep recesses of it. It could be the next pet project. It could be buying that dual axle trailer. It could be my children. It could be my renovations. It could be the next exciting purchase. It could be anything that we shape our, our time around too much. Maybe TV, maybe Facebook. YouTube, perhaps our work, getting that clothing look just right, or that next romantic novel. Or it could be anything that causes us to forget God. Perhaps it's my investments. Perhaps it's my sport. Or just plain distraction and noise around, which is one of my favourites. What is it that gets, us, gets in the way of us spending time with our Maker to read and pray? You'll know the things that cause you to do that. For me, I know the things that cause me to do that. It could be anything that we long for. It might be the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the car or the bike, the footy match we're looking forward to watching. Or it could be just things that cause damage to us, the image of God. It could be um, overeating. 
It could be sex outside marriage. It could be any of those things. So we have idols. As the expression goes, each one of us is an idol factory which causes us to drift away from God and that means drift away from his safety. So now that we've looked at sin and suffering, let's look at the second point which is repentance and deliverance. Repentance and deliverance. Well, how does it start? The Israelites' suffering leads to something. It leads to a cry for help. Judges 6 tells us that having forgotten God, the children of Israel were impoverished and they cried out to God. The Bible is full of examples of repentance and all of them begin with a cry for help. We cannot escape sin. We cannot escape sin. We cannot escape its fruits or the penalty of sin without God's mercy and it starts with a cry for help. And God does not change as we sang this morning. God never changes. We can expect the same rescue from our sins as the Israelites expected from their cry if we cry out to God today. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 tells us emphatically, if we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. How then does God respond to our cries for help? He begins a process of deliverance. Unfortunately for me, who loves to tick boxes and is a rusher, God does not rush. There is no flick of the switch back to the luxury of being in God's safety. It is a process that is done at God's pace, only at God's pace. God will not be rushed. Firstly, God sends his messenger to Gideon. Yes, Gideon, our anti-hero. We might have chosen somebody else like the America's greatest hero, but God chose Gideon. There are no great deeds mentioned in Gideon. Uh, Gideon. There are no demonstrations of high-caliber oratory. There are no demonstrations of bravery. Gideon himself admits, I'm the weakest of the weakest of the clan. This is not a good resume. If the greatest American hero was not up to it, then Gideon is definitely not up to it. But God visits Gideon. God visits Gideon, the very creator of the universe and the God of Israel comes to earth and he visits little old Gideon. And yet in such an ordinary way that, God, that Gideon does not recognise the gravity of the encounter initially. Gideon only recognises his peril when God demonstrates his power. Electrifying plasma streams from God into a fantastic demonstration of sheer divine multi-dimensional power. How's that? God burned up Gideon's drenched dinner and this was a sign of his dominance over Baal, the false god, the impotent Baal. This was a mini version of the fire that came down in Elisha's stouch with the prophets of Baal. So why, why does God need to startle Gideon with a revelation of his power? Gideon suddenly realises who he is dealing with. And this epiphany 
is the answer to Israel's condition. If Israel forgot who God is, then Gideon must lead Israel in remembering who Gideon is. But if Gideon is to lead Israel in remembering who God is, then he must first remember himself. Gideon had to remember God in order to lead Israel. It's no accident that experiencing God's power, Gideon has the confidence to destroy the idols of Baal. We often talk about revival of our nation. I often talk about it. We often talk about it for our city. But surely it should start with me. Surely it should start with us. And start with asking God to reveal himself to us. Only God can open this hard heart of mine. Only God can open your hard heart. Only God can open our eyes. Only he can show us his power and his glory and his holiness. Brothers and sisters, please pray for this church. Ask that God would be merciful to us and that he would continue to reveal himself to us so that we would know our condition and that we would cry out for help and for repentance. I ask myself this, do we have a sense of God's power in our lives? If not, why not? How can it be obtained? What prevents us from knowing God's power? Do we make room in our hearts, in our life, for God to speak to us through his word and through prayer? Do our idols sicken us? Do they blind us? Let's get on our knees daily and ask God to reveal himself to us so that we can discard those things that enslave us, that make us unsafe. Do not give up asking God to reveal himself to you. Do not give up until he shows himself to you. Well, having humbled Gideon, God encourages him. It seems to me that Gideon loved God, even if in a small way. When we hear God say to Gideon, O warrior, it's easy to think that this is the beginning of their relationship. But I think God, Gideon's responsiveness to God's gentle and ongoing encouragement might hint at some kind of previous relationship. Some theologians scoff at Gideon's request for encouragements, but God doesn't. Firstly, Gideon asks how he could carry out this great commission. God says in verse 16, I'll make it easy for you. Secondly, Gideon asks for a sign to prove that it is really God speaking to him in verse 21. God vaporizes his dinner and vanishes into another dimension right before Gideon's eyes. Thirdly, Gideon wants to know if God is really going to rescue Israel. In verse 38, God responds by granting Gideon yet another sign. Fourthly, Gideon requests confirmation of the sign, if you can believe it. And in verse 40, God grants it. God supernaturally condenses a single square metre of dew on a fleece, again belittling Baal's claims to be the god of rain and dew. Fifthly, God executes what I call an inverse sign. This is where God puts the previous encouragements to work and to test. God whittles down 10,000 men to just 300. 
not on the basis of capability, but purely on how they drink. Even God has a sense of humour in our most serious of predicaments. Sixthly, God actually entices Gideon to ask for an encouragement. Gideon agrees to the offer and hears the testimony of two men having dinner in the enemy's camp, and I'll leave that to you to read about another day. When we're in the pattern of following and obeying God, he knows what we need to ask and he offers it freely. But how are these incremental encouragements to our weak anti-hero Gideon? What is God like with Gideon? Sorry, why is God like this with Gideon? Why doesn't God become frustrated and zap him like his dinner? God tells us he's not like that. God tells us he is a patient and long-suffering God. Although Gideon's faith is small, it's very small. It's tentative and it's a little nervous. He's obedient. Firstly in the small things, then the bigger things. Here's another domino sequence. This time, it's wonderful. God encourages Gideon a little. Gideon's faith grows a little. God encourages again, and Gideon's faith grows a little more, and his obedience grows a little more. Each time, God layers responsibilities on his shoulders, and then God uses our little weak hero to rescue his special people, the children of Israel, from their sin and their suffering, or at least from their suffering. So what about us then? How can we respond to the sin that leads to our suffering? The thoughts and the desires that no one sees, what are they that drag us away into sin and suffering? There's a fallen world around us that presses in on us daily. Well, there's somebody who empathised with this who wrote in the New Testament, and that's Paul. We read that this morning. Paul empathised with us he empathised with the Israelites. He knows our condition. And this is what he tells us from Romans 7 verse 1 onwards. It's a bit exasperating. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's word. But I see another law at work in me, just like the Israelites. Waging war against the law of my mind making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Who here has felt like this next verse? What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That's a cry to the Lord. But then the same God, the same God as yesterday, is today. The same God comes through for his people and Paul tells us, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers us from Jesus Christ our Lord. We are emphatically assured that that same potential for rescue is there. This time it's not the shadow of a saviour that Gideon was. It's not some crusty 80s TV show. This time, it's the creator 
of us and the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith, come to earth as a man. This is Jesus. For those of you who don't know, Jesus is a real person. He is a real person who came to earth and he lived the perfect life for us. He lived the perfect life because we couldn't. And he suffered a horrific penalty for our sin. He died, he was judged, he was crucified and punished instead of us. And this is for anyone who believes in Jesus. It's really, really, really simple. Now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in a dimension of the universe one day we'll get to see. At the moment we can't, but he is still there ready to rescue us. So are we struggling with difficult times? Maybe our idols are hurting us. Maybe they're leading us out of safety. Is God trying to get our attention? Whether you know Jesus or not, be wise. Be wise. And before it's too late, cry out to him. He has a record of saving, of rescuing, of listening, of saving. God is in charge. He's always in charge. He is still in the business of rescuing those who cry out to him. There's only one person who can rescue us, and that's him. There's only one person that can rescue us from our sin, from ourselves, from Satan and his hordes. There's only one name. There's only one name, and that's Jesus. So, the children of Israel were reminded that there is only one place for safety, and that is obedience to God, their king. These are uncertain days. So there's no better time to reconcile with your maker, with your creator, with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one place really to be safe, and that's by his side. What are the idols that draw us away from him? Well, we need to hear God's voice to the Israelites, calling us to repentance and obedience and back to his safety. And I guess I'd say, and I speak to myself this way because I I love distractions and noise, I love ticking boxes and doing things, but I find it hard to sit and listen. So I'd encourage us to spend time in quiet places this week and consider these things. As you read his word, he will show you your idols. As you pray to him, he will show you your idols. It might not be what you expect. We need to admit to him that we are wretched, There is no other way to describe it and pray that Jesus, by his spirit, will help you turn from your idol back to him. And if that's too hard, that's why Jesus put brothers and sisters amongst us. Ask somebody to pray for you, to pray with you when you cannot pray. Jesus is loving by putting us amongst those who can help us. And then, then may the peace of God which transcends all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know me. You know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. 
we need your help. We need your help. And we cry out to you. Lord, there is only one fix, and that is Jesus. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in him. Show us our idols, and by your spirit, help us turn back from them to your safety. May you be glorified and you alone because of your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.